0: I'd like to have you turn with me to Luke chapter 23. (coughs) Excuse me. Luke chapter 23. Now, I mentioned last week that we were going to continue uh, on with some more information concerning uh, Barabbas and the mention of Barabbas, since John only mentions his name and. De- designates him as a robber. And I mentioned last time that he was much more than that, and we're going to get a little deeper into his uh, into his crimes. But uh, uh, as I was researching and putting stuff together, I came to the realization that there was one more important subject to deal with as far as Jesus being tried before Pilate, before Herod, and before the religious leaders of Israel. So, let me begin by reading verses 13 through 25, the text that we will be looking at shortly, or not so shortly, but soon, uh, as we begin our study today. Verse 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and, lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder, was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them of the chief priests, and the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will." Our study today will act as a supplement to the Apostle John's account of Jesus' trials, and I hope will fill some very important gaps pertaining to both expositional and spiritual issues. One thing that needs to be observed in this passage, as well as in what we've already covered in John's Gospel, is the striking testimony that was borne witness to by the Lord's judges. Those who were judging the Lord, they bore a witness that Jesus had perfect innocence. Jesus was guiltless. He was blameless. He was sinless. When you go back to verse 13 of this text that we just read, I want to get a little deeper and really focus your attention on this one word. But it Verse 13 says, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I have examined him. Now I want you to focus your attention on that word examined. I have examined him before you. I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. Everything that you have accused him of, I find no fault in him. In other words, he hasn't committed any of those things. No, nor yet Herod, he goes on to say, for I sent you to him, and, lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Literally there in the Greek, what that's saying is nothing worthy of death has been done by him. Nothing worthy of death. Now, going back to what we studied last week when, in John 18, verse 38, Pilate saith unto Jesus, when he said, What is truth? Because Jesus said that he came to give testimony of the truth. He said, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault. Look at the last two words at all. I find in him no fault at all." And both Pilate and Herod were of one mind in pronouncing Jesus not guilty of the things that they were laid, of the things that were laid to his charge. But let us not forget that Jesus was proclaimed by John the Baptist Early on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 29, he was proclaimed by John the baptizer with these words, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus was approaching John for the sake of being baptized by him, to give evidence of why he came and what he came to do, which was to die. That's what baptism is a a symbol of, the representation of him being taken into the water as if dead, buried, but then brought up in newness of life, brought up alive and resurrected. That is the whole picture of what baptism is. That's why Jesus went. He didn't need to be baptized. He did it for a picture. But John said, as he sees Jesus, his own cousin, as a matter of fact, he said, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus was to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins as the Passover lamb. Now, the Passover lamb that we find in in Exodus chapter 12, at that very first Passover uh, that was held, when God was repairing the children of Israel to depart from Egypt, because a plague was coming, the final plague that was coming upon the, upon the Egyptians. But even the Jews themselves had to prepare a lamb by God's instructions. They were, of course, to take the lamb's blood and they were to sprinkle the blood onto the doorpost and the lintel of the, of the house. And those who were inside of the house would be safe. And you begin to see all of the representations of of what had been given to them as now types of the blood of Christ and the death of Christ as the Lamb. So it was only right and it was only fitting that those who examined him should formally pronounce him as a guiltless and blameless person. Years later, the apostle Peter would declare this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he would say, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, notice, and then notice the next phrase, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That only comes, folks, through examination. And then he goes on to say, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was speaking of the very fact that Jesus came to be the Passover lamb, the one true Passover lamb, for the salvation of all those who would believe upon him. But it was the Apostle Paul who would speak directly concerning the Passover lamb or the the lamb of Pesach. Pesach is the Hebrew word for Passover. And he spoke directly concerning the Passover lamb and his connection to us. He did it at a very interesting time in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he's correcting the church because they were, Seemingly very proud of, 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 of being able to have within their, within their body, a, 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 there was a, a sexual sin that was going on, and they, they seemed to be proud of the fact that they were allowing this to happen for some reason. Kind of a weird situation when you think about it. But it is at that point that, that Paul would say in, in verse 6 Your glory is not good. Know you not that a little leaven, a little yeast, leaveneth the whole lump? You see, Paul uses leaven as a type of sin. And for those of you that understand baking a little bit, you realize that when you need to put a little bit of yeast in it, you don't have to put a whole lot in it, into the dough that you're going to make bread from. You just put a little bit in. Yet it affects the whole lump. That's what sin does. Just a little sin, just a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. So he says, purge out there for the old leaven. That's the reason why during the, the Passover uh, every year, even to this day, Jewish families uh, have their kids go through the house finding little pieces of, of they, you know, they, they put them out there so the kids will find them and, and gather all the yeast so that they can throw it out of the house. It's part of their celebration of Passover. But how significant it is that Paul himself would say, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you you are unleavened, he says. Listen, because of what Christ has done in being the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin, taketh away, get it? Taketh away the sin of the world. He says, you are now unleavened. In a little while we're gonna take a piece of bread and a cup and that little piece of bread is unleavened. There's no leaven in it. Symbolic of that very same thing. We are now new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. All things have become new. And then he goes on to say, for even Christ our Passover. Literally he says, Mashiach our Pesach. Mashiach our Passover. Messiah is sacrifice for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you know that the Feast of Passover is followed the next day by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So I bring all of this up, I bring this issue up because of the need to understand the examination process, the examination process that Jesus underwent as the Lamb of God. At the feast of the Passover, the man of the house was was commanded, that first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, we'll go there in just a minute, but in that first Passover the man of the house was commanded to examine a lamb for the Passover meal. In Exodus 12, verses 3 through 6, it says, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. The month, by the way, was the month of Nisan. And there in the month of Nisan, they were to take a lamb on the tenth day of that month. A lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. But then what's most important is verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish. How are you going to know that it's without blemish unless you do what? Unless you examine it. Unless you inspect it and keep your eyes on it. So notice as it goes on, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from among the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. You shall keep it up, I'll explain that in just a moment, until the 14th day of the month. That means that five days from the 10th through the 14th of Nisan, the lamb was to be inspected. And those five days, from the moment that Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, and that, by the way, was actually the previous day, the ninth day of Nisan, when he enters into the into Jerusalem on the on the of a donkey, and the people proclaim proclaim him as Messiah. Now he's being examined. And he would be examined by the people, he would be examined by the priests, he would be examined by the Pharisees, he would be examined by the Sanhedrin, he would then later on, of course, be taken to Pilate and be examined, and he would be taken to Herod, and he would be examined, all within those five days. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening." The phrase I mentioned, and you shall keep it up, in the Hebrew is mishmeret. Mishmeret, which literally means to guard. It means to guard and to keep. It means to inspect and to examine closely. To guard it, to watch it, to keep it, and examine it very closely. During those five days leading up to Pesach, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was inspected, as I said earlier, expected and examined closely by the religious leaders, Pilate, even Herod, and found, by the way, by all those groups or individuals found to be faultless. You might say, you're including even the religious leaders as those who found Jesus faultless? Yes. We know that even the religious leaders believe that. For why would they resort to testimonies of spies and false witnesses?" Why would they resort to false testimonies? Because they could not trap Jesus. They could not trap Him because He was faultless. You got it? I want you to consider, if you will, Luke chapter 20, just a few pages before the text. Luke 20, verse 20. Interesting how, even in this one phrase, it says, and they watched him. They watched him. They examined him. They inspected him. They were guarding him. And the they, of course, are the religious leaders. They sent forth spies. And notice what they tell the spies to do. They sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men. In other words, they should go out there and fake being just men. (laughs) That's what it means to feign, to fake. They were fake just men, that they might take hold of his words. They were supposed to act like followers, but they were going to trap him in his words. I'll, I'll explain the, the incident in just a moment. That they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. They wanted to take Jesus and, and, and give, it, give Pilate something to accuse him of against Rome. You go down to verse 26 of the same chapter, and it says, and they could not take hold of his words. Which literally means they could not fight anything to hold him before the people. And they marveled at his answer and held their peace. In this incident, which had to do with rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, they were trying to trap him into saying something against Caesar and against Rome so that they could say, you see, he's an insurrectionist. You need to take him and you need to crucify him. But they couldn't hold him for it. Why? Because he said, listen, this question about taxes and Caesar, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what things are God's. (laughs) And it says here, they marveled at his answer. (laughs) And they held their peace. They zipped it. They couldn't say anything. Why? Because Jesus lifted the discussion to a much higher level and forced the religious leaders and their spies to think about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men. Therefore, Jesus was blameless, and they knew it. They couldn't even trap him. Consider also Jesus before the high priest and the chief priests. Let's go to Mark chapter 14. It's the same incident where Peter was following behind and he was trying to find out what they were going to do to Jesus when they took him to the high priest. Notice verse 55, and the chief priests and all the council which is the Sanhedrin sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death. What's the next three words? And found none. They found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. You know what that means? It means that they couldn't get their story straight. They couldn't get their lies to fit together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without (laughs) hands. but neither so did their witness agree together. So there they were again with no truth to back up their accusations to take him to his death. And so the undercover spies, the false witnesses, Pilate and even Herod, Jesus was thoroughly examined by them. Jesus was thoroughly inspected by them. Jesus was thoroughly watched by them, and yet not one could find any wrong in the Lamb of God. In fact, one of the great Jews of all time, the Apostle Paul, would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he has made him... God has made the Son, God the Father has made the Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. The one pronounced innocent was condemned to death. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And also consider Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Was Jesus tempted? All the time. He wasn't just tempted 40 days and 40 nights before his earthly ministry by the devil himself. He was more than likely tempted after his birth. Tempted as a child, tempted as a a young man, as a a young child, a young man, and and eventually a full-grown man. Tempted at all points and yet without sin. And as the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ the righteous has undertaken to stand in our place. Think about that. Jesus Christ stands in our place. He chose to undertake that mission, to stand in your place and mine, to pay the debt that all of us owe. Why? Because we're all sinners. To pay the debt that we all owe, to fulfill the law that we have all broken because all of us are lawbreakers. And Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law completely for us. Jesus Christ has satisfied all of the law's demands for us. Jesus Christ has accomplished all of the law's requirements for us, for you and for me. There's a question asked in Psalm 24 verse 3 that says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? The answer in verse 4 says, He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. When it comes right down to it, there really has only been one who has not only had clean hands and a pure heart but has maintained clean hands and a pure heart throughout all of his life, whether in heaven or on earth. And that's Jesus himself. And Jesus is the righteousness of all sinners. When we're declared righteous because we've come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Whose righteousness is it really on us? Is it our righteousness? Is it anything that we did to deserve salvation? (laughs) No, not at all. In fact, Paul tells Titus, he says, uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. There's no righteousness that's good. You know, Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. But Jesus is the righteousness of all sinners who believe in Him. That's why it's important to believe in Jesus Christ. Because in believing in Christ, in confessing with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in our heart that he's risen from the dead, listen, you will be saved and if you are saved then you will be covered by the righteousness of Christ and Jesus is the righteousness of all sinners who believe in him. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses one through four, Paul speaking about his own people, the people that he wants them to be saved, the people of Israel. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. If anybody knew that, that was Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus, when he was a member of the Sanhedrin, when he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, when he was the zealous one for the law. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness. Sounds exactly like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, who Jesus condemned by saying in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 23, he said, listen, hypocrites, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. On the outside you look so pious, but on the inside you're just whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Well, who then is the righteousness of God if it isn't Jesus? The Gospels have made it clear The apostles have made it clear, especially the Apostle Paul, when he he says that Christ is our righteousness. And notice verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law. He is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. SO THIS IS MUCH OF WHERE THE RELIGIOUS LEADERS OF ISRAEL FAILED. GOING ABOUT TO ESTABLISH THEIR OWN RIGHTEOUSNESS, THEY WOULD NOT AND DID NOT SUBMIT THEMSELVES TO THE RIGHTEOUSNESS OF GOD, BECAUSE THEY WOULD NOT AND DID NOT SUBMIT THEMSELVES TO JESUS CHRIST. THE MESSIAH HAD COME INTO THE WORLD, THE MESSIAH HAD really revealed Himself by the things that He said, by the things that He did, by the things that He preached and the authority given to Him only by His Father. The power to heal the sick, the power to raise the dead, the power to deliver men from demons. And yet they did not submit to Him, the only begotten Son of God. And in so doing, they took on themselves The whole responsibility of the Lord's death. Now I'm I'm going to state this now and I'll state it at the end, but here's the thing. This is not us condemning the Jews for killing Jesus. Please understand that. This is not like Hitler being the one who used the excuse that the Jews had to go because they were the ones who crucified Christ. The scriptures are very clear. But even those Jews who had come to know the Lord, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell the Jewish people, listen, this is what you did. Not so that they, God can wipe them out, but so that they could repent and turn to the Messiah who had come for them. Because remember, he came to his own first. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not." That was written by John, who was a Jew. And then Peter, who was a Jew, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had come upon the 120 in the upper room, and, 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 and the, you know, above the, their heads was that, you know, that that fire of of, of the Holy Spirit on them, and they began to speak in other tongues. Later on, what what did Peter do? He went and he preached to thousands of Jewish men. One of the things he said to them was this, Acts 3 verses 13 through 15. One of the things that this Jew said to his brethren was, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murder to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof you are we are witnesses. We are witnesses that he is alive. He's, he's risen from the dead. But you killed the prince of life. Do you notice that Peter, John, nor does the, Paul blame the Romans? Now they're going to have, you know, Pilate is going to have to stand before the Lord one day for what he did, for what he didn't do. But that's between him and God. Understand. This was not to say, listen, God is going to just wipe you out. This is to say, listen, you need to repent. Because Jesus is alive. He came to die for you. In Acts chapter 4, when when they were being questioned about, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John being questioned about you know this 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 lame man that that hadn't walked and, and all of a sudden they they prayed for him you know uh, uh silver and gold have we none but what we have we'll give unto you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and, and walk and and the guy got up and walked and he's walking and leaping and praising god into the temple and so on and so forth and the and the religious leaders would say what happened here So in that particular context, it says in verse 8 of Acts chapter 4, the next chapter, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined, notice the word he uses, examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Whom God raised from the dead. Even by him. Doth this man stand here before you whole. Wonderful statement by, by Peter to say. Listen. We didn't heal him. Jesus healed him. The very Jesus that you crucified. He's alive by the way. And he healed him. But after being threatened by the religious leaders for their witness of Christ, this is what Peter prays toward the end of the chapter, Acts 4 verse 27, for of a truth, this is a prayer, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. In other words, he's declared blameless, guiltless, without blemish, without spot. And now in your determined counsel, Father, Jesus has gone to the cross. And all of this finally brings us to our text. I bet you thought we weren't coming back to Luke 23. Verse 16 I start here because after Pilate says, look, Herod's checked him out. I've checked him out. We find no fault. But then he says this, which was really illogical, and it was really unjust. But he says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. I will therefore punish Jesus. Now was he not declared uh, not guilty? He was, he, was, he was declared not guilty. But he says, but I'll punish him for you. I, you know, he's trying to tell the Jews, Listen, look, you, you, you don't like him very much, so I, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of we'll rough him up. We'll punish him. We'll, we'll, we'll scourge him. We'll beat him, whatever. Then we'll release him. Pilate thinks he's doing the right thing in all of this. It's illogical. It's irrational to beat somebody who is sinless. But he offers it. And then, of course, he's thinking, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm supposed to release somebody to them, and I'll just release him. I'll beat him up and then release him. Verse 17, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, away with this man and release, him unto, release unto us Barabbas. We want Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in this city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate therefore willing to release Jesus. Did you get that? He wanted to release Jesus. Don't forget that his wife kept telling him, listen, I've had dreams. Don't do anything with this man. Don't, don't deal with this man. He did, you know, so he's listening to his wife. He's listening to the Jews. He's listening to, I don't want to have anything to do. That's why he washes his hands. And I'm done with this. They cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas. Pilate, therefore, willing to release, Jesus spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them this third time, the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. Here's the irrational part. I found no cause of death, so I'll go ahead and beat him. I'll chastise him, I'll punish him, I'll scourge him, and then I'll release him. And I'll let him go. And they were insistent, that's what instant means there. They were insistent with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison. Whom they had desired. Where were they thinking? What were they thinking, and where were they going with this? But he delivered Jesus to their will. He says, Take him. And he washes his hands of the matter. Now, if you remember, John focused on only one aspect of crime committed by Barabbas. Remember what that was? John 18, verse 40. They cried, they all again, saying, "Uh, not this man, but Barabbas. And John says, now, Barabbas was a robber. He was a robber? Well, he may have been a thief, but his most serious crimes were sedition and murder. Now, this is not to weaken in any respect what John labels him as, as we shall see momentarily. But Matthew called Barabbas a notable prisoner, notable prisoner, which could mean he's a remarkable prisoner or he's an eminent prisoner. But in this case, he was just a prisoner of note. And what I mean by that is this. Mark labeled him in the gospel of Mark. Mark labeled him as an insurrectionist who had committed murder during the revolt that he must have led there in the city of Jerusalem. So Barabbas was being held for sedition. Now, the most common definition for sedition is this. Sedition is words or actions that make people rebel against the authority of the government. Sedition is words or actions that make people rebel against the authority of the government. So whatever else that he was, Barabbas was public enemy number one in the eyes of Rome. Because as an insurrectionist, as one who had caused the people to rebel against the authority of Rome, as one who murdered on, that, on, on, on behalf of those that were wanting to get out from under the, you know, the, the foothold of, of, of Rome, he was public enemy number one. Why would they want to release Barabbas? And in those days, they didn't have long, long court you know, cases and long, long you know, waiting you know, for, for, for execution like we do today. No, once he's found guilty, man, boom, let's take him. Vamanos. Whatever it was. Of course, in those days, it was crucifixion. So is it any wonder why Pilate was ready to release Jesus? Get this Jesus out of the way and keep Barabbas in prison, man, because he's a bad dude. And yet that was not in the predetermined counsel of God. All compromised by Pilate aside, and we could talk about that for hours, but the real crime, the real crime of sedition was committed by the Jewish religious leaders whose words and actions made the people of Israel rebel against the authority of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You Remember that Jesus had said to them, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he called them the blind leaders of the blind. The blind leaders of the blind would lead those people off the cliff that they could not see. And let's not forget the charge of robbery, as stated by John. Yeah, so Barabbas was a robber too. I mean, they had to fund fund their insurrection somehow. But that wasn't the case here. For certainly the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees and Herodians, robbed, they were the ones that robbed the children of Israel of the truth of God's word. They were the ones that robbed the children of Israel of Christ's righteousness. They were the ones that robbed the children of Israel from the power of God's Holy Spirit from which they could be transformed into the image of His dear Son. Now all that before us means that they were guilty but why did Jesus come? Did he come to execute judgment upon them for those things? Or did he come to die on the cross for those sins? Even in in Paul's time the the Apostle stated to to the Gentiles who became believers in, in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13-16, through 16, notice the words that Paul uses here when he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Then he says, For ye brethren, become, uh, for ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea, Now, Judea would mean that the churches in Judea were, of course, mostly made up of Jews who came to Christ. So, you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, for you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen. They were going through persecution by the Gentiles because of their love for Jesus. And then he goes on to say, for you also have suffered like things of of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews the Christians in Judea, who both killed the Lord Jesus, and there's Paul also stating who killed Jesus, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost." But the point is here, that this is not to condemn the Jews alone. For all have sinned. Jew and Gentile, all have sinned. Every one of us, whether we're Jew or Gentile in this room today, every one of us is connected to the Garden of Eden and the sin that took place there, that brought sin to every man into this world. We're all connected. to, to Adam and to Eve who were deceived by the serpent who was Satan himself we fell into sin we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but as many as received him John 1 verse 12 but to as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name Jew or Gentile as many as received him that is why the accusation was put upon the Jews by Jews who had come to Christ because they had taken upon themselves As we saw in the case of Annas and Caiaphas, they had taken upon themselves the responsibility to kill the only begotten Son of God. And yet had they repented of their sins, they would be changed into newness of life in Christ because he came to the Jew first and also to the Gentile.